Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, called him Lord, and you are her children if you do do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Ryan. Friends, let's play one more time before we enter into our sermon. Father, be with us as we open up your word, not picking and choosing which one to study and which one to hear from based on what is comfortable to our ears, but going through it, every thought, every command, every imperative, every, every word of love that you have communicated to us um, through human language in, these, in, in this letter. And Father, I pray that as we do so, you be gracious to us and that you help us see what it is you're trying to really say uh, from, from these texts, that we may see Christ and how to live our lives as implied and commanded by the gospel of grace we have received. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, friends, we're continuing today in our series through First Peter, and we talked about verses 1 to 12 a lot last Sunday. Well, the guest preacher did. We're going to talk about verses 7 to 12 today. That's what we're going to focus on, okay? And last week, I thought, you know, the guest preacher took the really hard part of the book. He talked about how slaves are to submit to masters and wives to husbands, and I thought, you know, I'm glad I wasn't the one preaching that one, but we had a guest, guest preacher do that. And I thought I escaped the hot seat until I read the passage today, and it mentions that woman as the weaker vessel. Um, and I say, you know, great. Uh, before you guys storm out and leave, Okay. At face value, I had all kinds of questions too, even disagreements to it at face value. Because if taken out of context, it can sound like the Bible is supporting some kind of misogynism, some kind of uh, male-dominant culture, this belief that men are inherently better or stronger than women, or that wives in this context have less voice in a marriage. That's not at all what Peter is saying, okay? Peter isn't trying to make claims of the inherent worth of male and females, Peter isn't even making claims about marital roles. That's not what the book is about. Remember now, what was the context of the book of 1 Peter? It's a letter that Peter wrote to who? 
Peter was writing to Christians who at the time was living under uh, the Emperor Nero, right? And they're being persecuted by the culture around them. All kinds of Christians were getting all kinds of persecutions for their faith from all kinds of people in all kinds of sectors in society. Peter is saying here, don't fight back, Christians, if you're getting persecuted for your faith. Don't pay evil with evil, but what? Endure. Love them. Care for them, even when they're persecuting you. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those Christians back then. Think about all the sectors of society that exist back then. Which two sectors of society would it have been toughest for to obey that command? If, if, if these people were to receive Christ, it would have been harder for them to obey that command than anybody else. Slaves and wives. That's what the passage last week was about. Why would it be harder for those two people that come from those two sectors of society to obey the command of loving others when they persecute you for your faith? Because slaves were already being treated harshly and unjustly by their slave owners. So if they receive Christ and they get persecuted for being Christian as well, guess what? It's double hard for them. You see? Wives already had very little voice in that society. Unfortunately, it was a misogynistic culture. Unfortunately, it was a male-dominant culture. So when a wife receives Christ and she's persecuted for her faith, guess what? It's double hard for her too. You see? That's why Peter, remember the structure of this letter? It's like a sandwich, right? Peter first writes that every Christian in that culture is called to love those who persecute them for Christ. Then he talks about Christian slaves in that culture. Love others who persecute you for Christ too, which most likely would come from a non-believing master. And then he talks about how Jesus loved and endured injustice when he was mistreated for our sins on the cross. Okay, Others, slaves, Jesus, and then wives, that they too, Christian wives, are to endure and love uh, those who persecute them for Christ, which most likely will come from a non-believing husband. And then he's back to husbands and everybody else. Why do you think he structures the letter that way? Peter places Christian slaves and Christian wives closest to Jesus. What is he trying to say? What is he acknowledging? That you guys are getting it double worse. You guys are getting it double hard because the evils of slavery and misogynism in this broken culture, you're getting it double hard compared to every other Christian who received Christ. That's why you get a seat closest to Jesus. You get a place closest to him. And now in our passage today, what's happening? Peter's addressing Christian husbands in that culture, after the wives, and how they are to endure mistreatment when they are being persecuted for Christ, which most likely would come from their non-believing wives. You see what I'm saying? It's about how to endure persecution. It's not about marital roles. Okay, that's what this passage is about. That's the context it must be read under, or else you're going to get all kinds of crazy implications. Okay, so three things. Let's get to it. The Christian husband endures evil sacrificially, point one. This is a pattern for every Christian, point two, who has a secure identity in Christ, point three. The Christian husband endures evil sacrificially. This is a pattern for every Christian who has a secure identity in Christ. Point one, the Christian husband endures evil sacrificially. Now, Why are persecuted Christian husbands one step further from Christ compared to persecuted Christian wives? Why are they one step further? Does Jesus love husbands less? No. 
Okay, Jesus loves you just the same. But the kind of persecution that Christian husbands would have experienced from an unbelieving wife back then would have been much more tamed. It would have not have been anywhere close to what a believing Christian wife would have received from a non-believing husband, okay? A Christian wife might have been abused by a non-believing husband for her faith in Christ through abuse, but what is a non-believing wife going to say to a Christian husband? How is she going to persecute her Christian husband for his faith? You know, the husband says, let's, let's go to church, and the wife says, no. That, that's probably the extent to it. <laughs> the wife saying, no, I'm not going to church. It's very unlikely she's going to physically abuse him it's very, because it's a misogynistic culture. It's a male-dominant culture. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize the persecution that some Christian husbands would have gone from their wives. Peter addresses it. Back then, you know, the husbands would have felt a, quite a bit of shame. Because like Indonesia today, it's a shame and honor culture when your family doesn't follow in line with you, Right? Why do you think some husbands today in Indonesia force and coerce their family to go to church with them? Not only to go to church, but to go to his specific church. Why does that happen? Because, because there is this honor and shame that comes with whether or not you can be seen if your family follows with you. That's why sometimes husbands and fathers use coercion even, inappropriately, to, to make that happen. Okay? There's a saying in Greco-Roman literature Back, which is the culture back then, it says, a man, therefore, ought to have his household well harmonized if he's ever going to harmonize state, form, and friends. <laughs> if you want to get anything together, you get your family to get, you know, in line first. That, that's kind of what it's saying. That's the culture back then. But today, you know, you read the writings of Confucius. You hear something similar. Confucius says, it is impossible for one to teach others who cannot teach his own family. And you're like, Okay, like that's not all bad, I guess. But then also you get this undue pressure to get your family in line because if you don't, then your honor as a husband just, just dies. That was a culture back then. It resembles our culture today that the behavior of one's family almost is a direct measure of the honor, worth, and value of the husband or the father. I'm not saying we should get rid of that altogether, but husbands, listen. If the behavior of your family is the main place you find worth in, if that's the main measure of who you are as a man, you know what's going to happen? You're going to crush your family. You're going to crush them. Because if they're not in line, your whole identity crumbles. It's going to be so tempting to use force and coerce them to follow you. Peter is saying to the Christian husband back then, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> that's not how you're going to lead your family to Christ. Not through force not through coercion. Don't force her to go to church. Don't use a heavy hand to coerce them to receive Christ. If they revile you for your faith, don't retaliate. I know the culture lets you, but you will not do it. That's what Peter is saying here. If she shames you and makes fun of your, your faith amongst your friends, if she influences your kids and make them think that you're in some weird cult, you can explain and dialogue and reason with them, but never coercion. Never force. But it's going to cause me shame, we might say. I don't care, Peter says. <laughs> don't use force. People do not come to faith in Christ through force. That's a terrible way to share the message of the cross with others. 
Do you see how it's the exact opposite of it? Instead, what does Peter instruct these believing Christian husbands to do when they're being persecuted for their faith of, by their non-Christian wives? One, live with the, verse 7, live with the unbelieving wife in an understanding way. Keep your understanding. Keep a sober mind. But, but they're shaming me by not coming with me to church. Keep your understanding. Don't use force. They're, they're, they're shaming me in front of my friends. Keep your reasonable faculties. Keep a sober disposition. But it'd be so much quicker to use force, right? It'll be so much more efficient. Don't. But what's the big deal? You know, the culture around me permits it. They even applaud it. Don't. That's what Peter is saying. That's why Peter says the woman and the wife here as the weaker vessel. He's not making a claim about the nature of women being less than men. He's acknowledging, he's making a cultural observation that the culture you're in, the social dynamics at the time, woman here is, is the weaker vessel. Peter is saying your culture may allow that for you to force your wife to come with you to church, for you to, for you to retaliate back to your wife when she's shaming you for her faith, but Jesus does not. He does not let you do that. What is your call, Christian husband, when the non-Christian wife reviles you for your faith and shames you maybe indirectly for your faith? Keep your understanding. Don't lose it. But then go beyond that. Verse 7 again. Show them honor, he says. Go beyond that. Show them honor. How? By treating them as if they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, there's a bit of translation issue here in the ESV. I think it's fine, but it needs addressing. The ESV translates the middle of verse 7 as, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That makes it sound like the wives are already Christians, okay? That they already have received the grace and eternal life uh, offered by Christ on the cross. But the NIV perhaps is a bit clearer here. The NIV says, treat them as heirs with you of the grace of life. And the NASB translate that also may be clearer. Treat them as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if you look at the Greek, it seems to agree with the NIV and the NASB. It says, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, even as a co-heir of the grace of life. Treat them with honor as if, as if they're your fellow Christian sister in Christ. The point is, go above and beyond. They may revile you. They may subtly throw jabs, even explicit jabs at you. They may refuse going to church with you. It might cause you all kinds of public shame. And, and they may be saying no to you to go to church purposely because it knows it's going to bring you public shame. They may even turn your kids against you. I don't care. Do not use force. Endure it. Take it. Forgive them. Love them. Honor them. Even while she's taking your honor away from you. That's the call for the Christian husband. And don't forget, husbands, look at, look at the end of verse 7, what Peter says there. He's saying, don't forget, the only reason why you are an heir of grace to life is because God laid down his power and life on the cross for a weak vessel like you who could not save himself. You think if you use your power to abuse your wife, who is in this culture the weaker vessel, God's going to hear your prayers? You think he's going to listen to you? How did you end up becoming a worshiper of Christ, husband? Did God coerce you with threats of hell? Is that why you received Christ? No. You ended up worshiping Christ because he persuaded you 
with sacrifice when he endured and took every drop of hell meant for you upon himself. If you coerce your wife to worship with you, what does that say about God? That's a terrible witness of the gospel. That's total opposite of the gospel. You want to lead your wife to Christ? You want her to come to know the Lord? Then become an innocent sufferer. When she persecutes you for following me, Jesus says, love her. When she reviles you for following me, keep it together. When she shames you for following me, honor her. That's what this passage is about. A preacher once said, I believe in a wife submitting to her husband. It's in the scripture. But I do not believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. My responsibility as a husband is to be worthy of it. I wonder, husbands, how much sweeter our marriages would be if we worried less about the submission of our wives and worried more about being worthy of it. And what kind of husband is worthy of a wife's trust and honor and respect is the kind of husband who has the gentleness to honor his wife even when she's dishonoring him. It's the kind of husband who has the meekness to cherish his wife and lay down his rights for her even if she's the one taking it away from him. It's the kind of husband who has the strength to make his wife feel precious even when she's reviling him. Be that kind of man. Worry more about that than about your wife submitting. That's what you should be focusing on, Peter says. That's what the cross should persuade you to do. Now, you're here today, and you're not a husband, and you're thinking, Sucks for you guys. <laughs> you know? Because that is not for me, I guess. But don't worry. Peter now applies this principle of enduring evil sacrificially to you too, to everybody. So husbands, smile at somebody who isn't because it's their turn, okay? Point two, this is a pattern for every Christian. Peter continues in verse eight. Finally, he says, so remember everyone, slaves, Christ, wives, husbands, everyone, okay? Peter continues in verse 8, finally, all of you, see back to everyone, all of you, born-again Christians, okay? Those who claim that you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, okay? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. It's a command for all of us. You know, when you try to do verse 9, you know, when you try to hold back and you cautiously not, uh, not pay evil with evil, you intentionally try to love those who persecute you, you know, for your faith. And, and you keep doing that over and over and over and over again. Habitually, that's going to do something to you. You know, it'll, it'll affect your heart in such a way. It'll grow you in self-control. It'll season you with humility. It'll, it'll sanctify you in meekness and forgiveness. Now imagine all these people who's been trained out there to lay down their rights for the sake of Christ, okay? Everybody out there who's, who is seasoned with self-control and humility, okay? Imagine all those people come together in a community. What, what does that community look like? 
How beautiful is that community going to be? Filled with seasoned people who's been laying down their rights for years. Now they come together. Look at verse 8. This is what it looks like. It will be marked with unity of mind, with sympathy, with brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's what the Christian community should be like because we've been seasoned to give up our rights and love others and care for them when they take it. Okay? There's a saying, you've probably heard it, that the education system of a particular society or city or culture can often be a mirror of that society. Okay? So if the education system in that city is segregated by race, that's probably a mirror to that society. That, that culture, too, is surrogated by race, okay? Or if an education system is influenced by one particular religion, um, you know, like in the south or, uh, of America, where my wife is from, there's a lot of Christian schools. Here, there's a lot of pasantrans, right? It, that's a mirror of the culture, okay? It probably shows you the religion that's dominant in that culture. You want to know how to see how society is doing or get to know a particular city better, look at the schools and universities. It's a microcosm of that city. And I think there's a similarity here. See, a lot of us, we have not been persecuted for our faith. We can't really connect in that level to where, to where they're being persecuted. We don't know how we'll react if we're explicitly persecuted for our faith. Okay, we don't know. Am I going to revile back? Am I going to pay evil with evil? I don't know. But I think if you want to know how you're going to react when something like that happens outside of here, just look at how you treat your fellow Christians in here. It's a mirror of how you'll react out there. It's a microcosm. Okay, do you have unity of mind with other Christians? Not meaning that you have to agree with every single doctrinal point, but it means that when another true born-again Christian with differing opinions or or particular doctrines uh, come at you, how well are you going to be able to love them and care for them and be sympathetic to them, the second thing? described here in verse 8. You know, but, but that church misunderstands our position and they just talk bad about our church all the time. Okay, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to react to that? The way you react to that is a mirror of how you'll react when you're persecuted out there. You're going to coerce them or are you going to love them anyways? And this goes with the rest of the list, you know. Do you have true brotherly love, right? That's the third thing. Look, if we just hang out with Christians that make us feel good about ourselves and comfortable about ourselves inside. That's not brotherly love. That's emotional barterism. When you're bartering, trading emotions. Okay, you do this, I do this, and we feel good. What we're saying is this. Initially, at the heart of that worldview, we're saying this. You must change to become the kind of person that makes me feel emotionally good inside in order for me to have fellowship with you. Do you see how coercive that is? That's coercive. You know, we try to have a tender heart, the fourth thing, meaning you're compassionate, right? You, you have compassion. You, you, you're sad when people are sad, and you actually do something for them. But often, at least when I try to be compassionate, here's what I find myself stopping at. I settle for distant pity. True compassions become distant pity. Distant pity is when we pray for someone at church, even maybe give them money, But then we see them on Sunday morning, and we find ourselves a bit guarded. Like, I'll say hi and bye just enough to make them not feel bad, but then bye. You know, compassion says, I'll embrace you even when you're messy. Distant pity says, I'll pray for you when you're messy and offer myself to you when you get it together a little bit. You see how coercive that is? 
We want to have a humble mind, meaning want to be self-forgetful and other-centered. But then we find ourselves being most self-conscious and falling into comparison when we're in church. Do you? Is that just me? Or, you know, look at his career. Look at her purse. I'm not jealous of your purse. I'm just, it's an example. You know, look at their life. And if our careers and our lives are a bit better, we feel a hint of pride. And if our lives are worse, then we perhaps sulk a little bit. But then Monday comes and we forget about it until Sunday comes and we're reminded again. It's a microcosm, okay, (laughs) how we treat each other here of how we're going to do out there. Are we self-focused? Are we going to coerce others before we give ourselves to them and love them as Christian brothers and sisters? Or not? I wonder how CCC would act. You know, if we're ever persecuted from people out there that don't, don't believe in Christ, if we're ever reviled for our faith in Christ, I wonder how we'll react. We've never experienced it. Well, I think I know how we react based on how we treat each other here today. Has CCC been marked more with a sympathetic unity or uncharitable harshness with those who have differing thoughts? Have we been marked more by brotherly love or emotional barterism? Have we been marked by true tenderness of heart and compassion or by distant pity? Have we been marked by self-forgetfulness and humility or self-conscious comparison? I don't think we're there yet. I think we have a lot, of, a lot of room to grow. You know how we get there? Okay, verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. The Greek word for bless here is eulogeo. It's, it's where we get the English word eulogy. What's a eulogy? A eulogy is when you speak favorably or well about others. That's the answer. You want to rid your heart of its need to coerce. You want to rid your heart of self-focused narcissism, but other self-forgetful joy. You want to get there? The answer is when someone reviles you, when someone takes away your right, don't coerce them back, but rather speak well of them. Now, okay, you know, we may think there's no way I can do that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you're ask, you're, if you ask me to fake it, I can. Like, if somebody is mean to me, like, I can fake it, you know? I can speak well of them to others. But really deep in my heart, I don't really feel it. Are you asking me to fake it? No. No, I'm not, okay? Maybe start with speaking well of them to God. The theme of prayer came up in verse 7. It's going to come up again in verse 12. And we might ask, you know, okay, so what? Like, you know, like, praise the person when I pray to God? You know, like, well, he was a real jerk, but he has nice hair, like, 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 what do you mean, <laughs> praise this person? Like, okay, I, I get it that sometimes when evil and injustice is done, we need time to process it. We need to be honest with God about how that's affecting us. We have to say, I'm hurt. We have to say, I'm really angry right now. He knows it anyways, okay? Vent, process, that's fine. But one, realize that processing and venting is the journey, not the end goal, It's the journey, not the end goal. Yes, at time, I think we tend to forgive too quickly without processing. Ends up being fake forgiveness just because it's the right Christian thing to do. But you're not actually really forgiving them inside, okay? That's not helpful. That's not what I'm saying. But I wonder, I wonder if often we settle with prolonging our processing as an excuse because we just don't want to forgive. I wonder both ends. 
Maybe, maybe speaking well about them to God, eulogizing them to God, looks something like this. God, there is nothing in my bones that want to even give this person an ounce of forgiveness, but make me want to want. Maybe that's where it starts. Make me want to want that. I don't want that right now. Be honest to him. Make me want to want. And the end goal is for you, hopefully, to be able to love them and say to God, I I honestly have forgiven that person, and I do love him, and I do want to bless him now. That's the end goal, you know? You want to care for them and sacrifice for them even when they're taking your rights away. It's hard work, but this is what you're called to do, Christian. Peter says in verse 9, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, now, one more, stick with me. That doesn't mean if you're able to forgive others truly from your heart, you'll earn a blessing from God, okay? That equation would go against everything Peter wrote in chapter one and two, okay? That salvation is by grace and grace alone. God blesses you in Christ through mercy and the work of Christ alone. We don't earn it. But also that equation, if I bless others so that God will bless me, that too is a form of divine coercion. Do you see what I'm saying? You're, you're telling God, I've done this, so you owe me this. That's coercion. That, that's forcing... Uh, giving a heavy hand, okay? If you bless others that you can control God's favor upon you and earn a place in heaven, that is the worst kind of coercion, okay? You're trying to control the divine. The Greek, again, here may be a bit clearer. The word called here in verse middle of verse 9 grammatically connects both to the first half of verse 9 and the second half of verse 9. I don't need to get into it. Simply put, it's, it's saying something like this. You Christians, here's what you're called to do by God. Christians, if you're a Christian, if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you were called to obtain a blessing through Christ who laid down his rights for you on the cross. And you're called to bless others by laying down your rights for them. The, you're, you're called for both. Okay, You're called to receive a blessing through Christ who has laid down his rights for you on the cross. And you're called to bless others by laying down your rights for them. Those two callings are two sides of the same coin. It's what Peter's trying to say. When God called you to receive the gracious salvation purchased by Christ, who laid down his life for you on the cross, he's also calling you to portray Christ to the world and lay down your rights for them. That's what you're called to do. I was tempted not to put this in here, and I didn't, but I think I might just say it. If you hear you're, you're a Christian, or you're, you know, you're, you've been exploring Christianity for a while, and you're almost close, and you're like, oh, this is a great you know, blessing that I want to earn. I really want to receive Christ. Do you really want to receive Christ after what you heard today? Do you realize what you're called to do? You're called to lay down your life and not revile when you're being reviled. You're called to do the hard work of forgiving others when you're, nothing in your heart wants to. That's what being Christian means. But it's joyous. You know, we th- I don't want to, sc- okay, my point wasn't to scare you away, okay? I'll feel very bad if half of you don't come back next Sunday because then I would have overstated what I meant to say. I don't want us to think that it's a miserable life, okay? We think, who would want to live like that? You know, where is the joy in that kind of life? You can't uphold your rights. You know, you can't be powerful. You just have to be weak all the time. Well, let's get to the, to the last point. The Christian husband endures evil sacrificially, point one. This is a pattern for every Christian, point two, who has a secure identity in Christ, point three. Okay, here's the thing. Yes, at face value, when we have the power to coerce other people to bend to our will, and when we get our rights, that may look powerful, okay? 
that may at face value seem like it's a display of strength. And when we let others take away our rights and we just let that happen, that seems to be a display of weakness, right? The husband who can coerce his wife to get his way may feel powerful afterwards, but by some standard of that culture, he may even be praised for it. I want to argue here that it actually reveals their weakness. How so? If you need to use force to get someone to behave a certain way in order for you to be happy, all that does is shows that your joy is dependent upon someone else's behavior. When a husband consistently coerces his wife to get respect, you know, uh, uh, shows that he's dependent upon his wife's behavior for an identity, for a sense of worth, or perhaps he's dependent on the culture's opinion to be happy. Does that sound like strength to you? That sounds pretty weak to me. But that's what happens, right? When all of us, when, when, when we hinge on the fact, when, when, when a male husband uh, living in a Greco-Roman culture, if that's his identity, if that's all of who he is, if that's his main anchor, if that's the description that encapsulates his worth, then of course he's going to feel like trash when his rights as a Greco-Roman husband is taken away. He's not going to be able to handle it. He's going to crumble. He's going to be tempted to coerce the person who took it away and say, give it back. But the Christian, to the Christian Greco-Roman husband, Peter is saying this, that's, that's not where you find true joy. You want to experience good days? Then you must have a worldview that tells you your worth and identity goes beyond the fact that you're a male Greco-Roman citizen. You have to know you have an eternal identity. If being a Greco-Roman male is your everything, or being an Asian businessman is your everything, or being a Chinese-Indonesian is your everything, or an African-American is your everything, or a European-Caucasian is your everything, or a local Indonesian is your everything. If your fullness of identity is hinged upon these earthly momentary identities, when someone touches your right as a fill-in-the-blank, you're not going to have the strength to be sober about it. You're going to lose it. Because that's all that you are. How would you not lose it? Okay, your reaction is always going to be give it back. Because if that's your primary identity, you're not going to be happy until your rights as a fill-in-the-blank is fulfilled. When you get it, you're happy. When you don't, you're crushed. You actually want to love life? Peter is saying here in verse 10, quoting Psalm chapter 34. You want to see good days? You have to know that you have an identity that goes deeper than further back, and will last way beyond whatever identity you have here on earth. At your core, you are not a Greco-Roman husband, Christian. At your core, you're not a Chinese-Indonesian wife, Christian. At your core, you're not an African-American, Christian. At your core, you're not a European-Caucasian, Christian. At the core, you're not an Indonesian businessman, Christian. What if at your core, you're a child of God? What if that's who you are? Then, look at verse 10. Then you'll be able to love life and see good days. (laughs) Then you'll be able to have the internal sturdiness and security and confidence to not need to shout at others to give you back your earthly rights. And if you choose to dialogue with people about the value of your earthly rights, I'm not saying you can't do that. It's totally fine to dialogue with somebody else about your earthly rights as a human being. But, but, But you can dialogue with them even set laws for it, not in a way that reviles them, not in a way that defames them, not in a way that, that, that 
puts evil to them in the process, you're going to be able to do it with sobriety, with understanding, while showing them honor, without evil and deceit in your mouth, Peter continues in verse 10. Then you can turn away from evil and do good to those who persecute you. Then you can actually stop screaming and start talking because you have an eternal secure identity that's not touched. And if they take away my rights as an Indonesian male, I can still love them. I'm not crushed. You see, I still have sobriety. I still have the strength to persevere. But you only have the strength to do that only if you know, only if you know that although this world turns a deaf ear and a blind eye towards your earthly rights, you know, verse 12, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. You can only have that kind of sturdiness to love others who persecute you and not lose it with them only if you know that the eyes and the ears of the divine will always hear and see you. Only then will you have that sturdiness to not revile when you're being reviled against. Okay, let me end with a story. My wife loves a book series called Anne of Green Gables. Some of you might know it. Um, It's a story about Anne, a young orphan girl with bright red hair and a fiery personality, okay? And Anne was taken in by a loving woman named Marilla Cuthbert. Sorry for you, Anne of Green Gables fans, if I'm not pronouncing that right, okay? But, but her name is Marilla Cuthbert, and Marilla, the lady who took Anne in, had a much older brother, very kind and gentle man. His name was Ma- Matthew Cuthbert, okay? And this, he lives with, the brother lived with, Matthew lived with Marilla, brother and sister. And Anne, the, the adopted child, the orphan, was particularly fond of Matthew because he was kind of this older, kind, gentle male figure that, he, that she never had, Okay? And one day in, in, in the book, uh, there's this insensitive, rather cruel neighbor who came to Marilla's house and said, I want to see your orphan child. You know, just very insensitive. And then when the neighbor saw Anne, um, the neighbor said this, well, they didn't pick you for your looks. That's sure and certain. She's terribly homey and skinny, Marilla. Come here, child. Let me have a look at you. Lawful heart which means like, ya ampun, like in those, in those neck of the woods, okay? <laughs> That's what that means. Ya ampun, a lawful heart. Did anyone ever see such freckles and hair as red as carrots? <laughs> and the way Anne responded, it was very therapeutic to me because it's often how I want to respond to people who wrong me, <laughs> okay? But I can't do it because this whole pastor thing, you know? <laughs> so, but this is how I want to respond. Anne responded, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. (laughs) You know? A louder stamp with each assertion of hatred. How dare you call me skinny and ugly? How dare you call me freckled and redheaded? You are a rude, impolite, and unfeeling woman. How would you like such things be said about you? How would you like to be told that you're fat and clumsy and probably hadn't had a spark of imagination in you? I don't care if I hurt your feelings by saying so. I hope I hurt them. You have hurt mine worse than they ever were hurt before. And I'll never forgive you for it. Never, never, never. I'm not proud about it, but that was a very therapeutic response for me. (laughs) Naturally, Marilla, Marilla, the lady who adopted Anne, sent Anne back to her room, right? And said, hey, Anne, you know, you got to be the bigger person here. You got to forgive her. What she did was not right. It was wrong. You know, she took away your your rights in a sense, but you got to forgive her. And Anne said this, okay? Anne said, you can punish me in any way you like, Marilla. You can shut me up in a dark, damp dungeon inhabited by snakes and toads. This is like a 
12-year-old talking, right? And, and feed me only bread and water, and I shall not complain, but I will never apologize to that lady. The, the point is, I think, there, there's no amount of coercion, there's no amount of punishment that's going to soften Anne's heart. She's always going to not want to forgive. It's not going to be soft. But you know what did soften her heart? Matthew Cuthbert did. Remember the old man that really loved her and that she really was fond of? Mr. Matthew came up to Anne's room after this and, and asked Anne to forgive the insensitive neighbor and said, just Anne, forgive her. And Anne said, I made up my mind, Mr. Cuthbert. And Anne, you know, and he said this, it's going to be terribly lonely without you downstairs. I'm going to eat breakfast by myself. I'm going to eat lunch by myself. I, I want you around. And, and, and Anne said, you know what? I knew that I was going to stay shut up here forever rather than forgive her. But still, I'll do anything for you. If you really want me to, Mr. Cupboard. And, and her heart was softened, and she apologized. Now, why did I share that long story to end? Okay, you know what softened Anne's heart was not coercion. What softened Anne's heart to forgive somebody who's wronged her was not the threat of punishment, but the request of a person who loved her deeply and a person who she loved more than anything. Do you know, Christian, why Peter can say that God the Father will always see you in verse 12? That his eyes are always on the righteous? Is it because you're righteous? Is it because you've lived an exemplary life and you've earned God's favor and salvation? No. The reason why God will never turn his eyes away from you is because he turned his eyes away from his son, Jesus Christ, who was crushed on the cross for our sins. The Father turned his face away. He didn't do anything about it. He didn't upheld his rights. Why? So that our sins will be forgiven. So that he'll never turn away from us. Do you know why, Christian, in verse 12, Peter says God will always hear your prayers? Is it because your life ha has been lived in such a way where God owes you to hear your prayers? No. God will never shut his ears to your prayers because when on the cross, the son cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? When the son prayed on the cross, God didn't hear him. He closed, God the Father closed his ears to God the Son. Why? So that he'll always keep it open for you. So he'll always hear you. He'll always see you. Even when we don't deserve it. The reason why you have an eternal identity that can be taken away and that you have rights before the throne of grace that will never falter is because God laid down his rights for you. And he gave himself away to be ravished on a cross. So sinners like us may joyfully worship and have communion with him. You know what's going to make you lay down your rights for other people who wronged you? Not coercion, not threats of hell. But when you realize Jesus is asking you, the person that loves you more than anything in the world and the person that you should love back more than anything in the world is asking you, do it for me. When you realize the person who remains silent when he was coerced for you asks you to do it so that, so that, so that you will, can, can portray to them the love that you've received and the love that he has for them, that's going to soften your heart. And guess what? When you fail, you're going to fail. I fail all the time. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to coerce you. I'm going to take away the salvation. No. No amount of punishment is left for your sins. It's all been taken on the cross. It's finished. Do it. Not because you're scared I'm going to throw you to hell if you don't. Do it. Because I've gone through hell and back for you.
That's going to soften your heart. When the world reviles you, don't revile back. Lay it down so that they may see the love of Christ who laid down his rights for you. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging passage. It takes almost supernatural spiritual strength that I need external of me to obey it. I can never do this on my own. But I thank you that you have deposited in me your spirit that has revealed the cross where Christ laid down his crown for me so that I may worship him forever. Thank you, and now that spirit, Father, I pray, would continue to encourage me to live out the gospel that I cherish so much, that that spirit would would encourage me and soften my heart to lay down my rights, not because I'm threatened of hell if I don't, but because the person who took hell from me asks me of it, that he may receive every ounce of glory for the suffering that he endured and that the King of kings who laid down his rights may be magnified as majesty of all, glorified by the ends of the earth as we share the gospel with them with our words and show the gospel to them by laying down our rights. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise and sing this together.